Sarah again. Um, I just wanted to make an announcement. So we're now going to be getting a uh, tour of Jerusalem, and after that, heading to the West Bank to stay in Beit Jala near Bethlehem. I'm sitting on a chartered bus somewhere in Jerusalem, about to cross the Green Line into the West Bank. I say that like you can tell when you're crossing the green line, like there's an actual green line on the ground or like a sign or something. There isn't. There's the separation wall, but that doesn't actually follow the green line. Anyway. It's December 2019, almost exactly 13 years since the first time I was riding around Israel on a bus with a group. I was 18 then, a freshman in college. It was birthright, a free trip premised on the idea that as a Jew, I have a birthright to this place. Israel exists for me, to be safely and proudly Jewish. This trip is a little different, but one thing is the same. Everyone on this bus is Jewish. We're here with the Jewish organization, which is complicated. We ask that when we enter the West Bank, folks not be wearing jewelry that has Jewish stars on it. If your practice is to cover your head, if that's wearing a kippot, we ask you to find another way to cover. And I know that this might sound odd, but one thing, as you all know, that's important to recognize is we're doing this as Jews, and our partners are very aware that we're Jewish, and it's very powerful that we're doing this as Jews, and also we're walking into a broader um, geopolitical reality outside of us, so we want to be respectful and to them. If you've listened to the previous episodes of this miniseries, you already know that I'm here with a group called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. As you just heard, the Jewish part of the Center for Jewish Nonviolence is important, symbolically. I also think it's pragmatic. You know, most of us who grew up in Jewish communities were taught to be afraid of Palestinians in one way or another. So I wonder how many of the people on this bus would feel comfortable going into the West Bank at all without other Jews. But being here with a Jewish organization is not a source of comfort for everyone on this trip. I'm feeling excited, but I'm feeling, I don't know, I'm curious to see the dynamic. Like I said to you earlier, like I am not used to doing this as a group of Jews. This is Lily. She has been to the West Bank several times, just never with a group of Jews. As a group of Jews, it feels it's like always a question of balancing the voyeurism and the being there for ourselves and for working on our communities back home with also making sure that it's a powerful and important and useful, most importantly, experience for the Palestinians to have us there. And so I'm kind of curious to see that that going in as a big group and how that how that works. Two years ago, I spent nine days in the West Bank with a group of 44 diaspora Jews who had come to practice co-resistance with Palestinians in the South Hebron Hills. The South Hebron Hills are an Area C, where Israel has total civil and military control, where settlers claim more Palestinian land every day, and where Palestinians live under constant threat of violence, demolitions, and displacement. But as these threats have escalated, so has the resistance. And that includes a growing movement of Palestinians and Jews working together to oppose and obstruct the occupation. For a few days, I got to see what that looks like. So I want to share some of the stories I heard in the South Hebron Hills and what I learned there about solidarity. For Unsettled, I'm Max Friedman, and this is The Birthday Party. Part 3, Lily. Um, I ended up in Bethlehem. Do you want the full way back to my teens? Okay. Um, 
It's the first night of the CJNV delegation, and I'm sitting with Lily on the terrace of our hotel in Bethlehem. I mean, as much as I hate to say it, because I wish it was something more interesting and profound, it's, I think, sadly, my activism grew out of a teenage rebellion. Lily is from North London. She's 23. Before she ever visited Palestine, her teenage rebellion started with questions. The British Jewish community tends, on the whole, to be more politically conservative than the American one. But I think plenty of American Jews would recognize the heavy-handed response Lily got when she started asking questions about Israel-Palestine. Not only why are you asking those questions, but also this real sense of those are things you shouldn't ask, and that's not right, and this kind of very strong counter-narrative being proposed and put forward to me. And so it was kind of like I pushed a little bit, and I was pushed back so far that as annoying as it is, I think I have my like more right-wing community back home to thank for actually putting me in this position where I was actually at that point so, so uh, just tired of being told that this was wrong and just felt like I actually um, at that point had been told I was wrong, told I was suffering, due, told I was a traitor enough times that actually like being here in person and having that personal experience was just going to really strengthen my, my ability to stand on my own two feet with my opinion. With this conflict, it's, it's so easy for everything to descend into either just falsities or, oh, and this year, this many people, this happened, numbers, numbers. And having the personal experience to come back home to my community with, like I was, the first time I was in Bethlehem, I was living in Ida refugee camp, which um, the UN has declared as the most tear gas place in the world. <laughs> in 2017, researchers from the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley surveyed families in Ida refugee camp. 100% of them reported having been exposed to tear gas in the past year. That was the same year Lily came to the West Bank and to Ida for the first time. She was 21. Being tear gassed in Ida refugee camp, playing with kids, and then a day later you come back and this 11-year-old has been like arrested and having those really actually sad, quite mundane stories of day-to-day -day life to take back home and bring that personal layer to it and bring a layer to it that people found very difficult to, to disagree with. They hadn't been to Ida, like no North London Jews had spent any time on this side of the, the Green Line, let alone in a refugee camp. And so bringing back those personal stories was something that was very powerful. And then once I was here, I was pretty kind of addicted to not only the warmth of community and, and I just felt incredibly welcomed and really loved the people that I was around, but also with a really strong sense of purpose. And that purpose is so powerful. After her first experience in Ida, she went home to the UK, but pretty soon found her way back to Bethlehem. While living in Bethlehem, studying Arabic and working at a bar, she started volunteering in the South Hebron Hills, specifically in Umel Kher. If that name rings a bell, that's because you heard about Umal Khair in the first episode of this miniseries, from Tarek. And so I was um, doing some work on Umal Khair, um, sometimes just behind the scenes and getting Umal Khair's name out there, but also going down there and staying overnight. Um, and it's really important staying overnight because often when the bulldozers do come, it will be at 4 a.m. or something. Like there's a real point that's made of, com of them coming at the most disruptive time. It's kind of that sense of... Um, you know, never knowing when it's going to come and also having that every night where you're going to sleep and it's like, okay, maybe I'll be woken up in the middle of the night. 
which creates a really horrible feeling for everyone in the community and like the kids in Umulkhair don't sleep and there's been all these cases of a lot of them having night terrors and nightmares because um, there's that constant hum of like I don't know what will happen tomorrow and you don't have the day to prepare for it it's like if you're going to be woken up you're going to be woken up to the sound of bulldozers like coming down the road. It's only been a few months since the last time she was here, but she knows CJNV is going to be different from her previous trips and a different kind of challenge. So when you first started coming to Bethlehem, you never thought, let me find a Jewish or Israeli Jewish organization to do this way? I, no. So when I came, I, like I said... I mean, I, I yeah. asked that because that's clearly the impulse of most of the people that were on this trip. Right. No, yeah, 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 totally. No, I, um... No, at that point, I felt like such an outsider already in terms of where I, w- where I stood with my own community um, and had really been pushed into that position of, like, Lily is this lunatic on the, on the fringe of... Um, and, and she doesn't know what she's talking about. And so, yeah, so at that point, I was already in kind of lone wolf mode. Um, and then, actually... Coming here and and being in Ida as my first experience was something that was so powerful and so transformative, but also so horrendous. I mean, you're seeing such an ugly, brutal side of the occupation that, quite frankly, at that point, like the job was done. I was hardened. I was pissed off. I didn't want to listen to anyone who had anything good to say about Israel. Like it was a really important trip for me, but I think in some ways quite damaging because it pushed me to such a hard extreme with no, nothing other than a very black and white, like one side's good, one side's bad, that's it. Like it's very easy to just go straight into a very simple, like those are the bad guys. So yeah, so from the moment I came here, the idea of then going and working with Israeli groups was was not something that I felt like I could kind of emotionally deal with. And it's also not where at that point I felt like I could have an impact. So, so that's not how you feel now, that, that these are the bad guys, it's black and white. That's, it seems to be what you're implying. Yeah, eh? yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I think also for me, it's it's got to be very strategic. And I think that my work with NAMOD in the UK, which is a movement of British Jews working to shift the conversation in the British Jewish community around the occupation, um, is very much about strategically looking at a situation where nothing's changing, and there's a need to zoom out. That's very clear with what Trump's doing. And you see like very clear, very clearly the role of um, international actors in this conflict and feeling like strategically, Palestinians are victims to Israeli and Jewish fear. And if I have any capacity to make a difference, surely it needs to be dealing with the fact that the fear is then creating this whole system and so if I can work within my community to try and shift that fear and shift the conversation then the impact that that will have on Palestinians will make more of a difference than me going in as one random Jew from North London being like oh, I'm gonna work with all these Palestinians and just like move a few rocks around and plant a few trees you know it's really nice to go there and be the only Jew amongst all these Palestinians and feel like you're doing something that's brave and so out of the box and you know all of that it's actually like no i need to think about uh what is going to make the most difference and that at this point i do think is is about changing the conversation within our communities back home um if if we have any power to make a difference i mean you know that the question the jury on that that one is still out but 
Um, if we do, I think that that's the work that at this point is most important. It sounds like your, your apprehensiveness about uh, entering that space with a whole bunch of Jews is sort of mitigated by your sense of the strategy of it. Yes. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a very strategic, non-emotional <laughs> robot. Um, yeah, like bigger picture. It's not about me. It's not about my own, like, whatever craziness I'm dealing with in my own head. Like, and I think that that, while I'm here, it really shouldn't be about that. Like, I have months to unpick all of my own emotional turmoil when I get home and I think you know we're here for a week this is not the time I think a lot of people disagree and I think the culture of CJMV is very much about keeping in touch with your emotions and keeping kind of in check and debriefing and checking in and really digging down into whether this is triggering you and anything like that but for me personally I think when you're here you've got to give it all you got and actually bringing your baggage to Palestinians isn't the right thing to do like it's this is a time when it is about checking your privilege. It is about knowing what your position is in relationship to the situation. And like, you know, when you're there, it's not about your emotions. It's not about how you're feeling. Like you throw yourself into it for a short amount of time and then, you know, cry about it when you go home. That sounds awful. I sound like a cold hearted, uh, I don't know. But, but yeah, for me, it's like there's a job to be done. The day after my first conversation with Lily on the terrace of the hotel, the CJNV delegation splits into three groups to spend time in three different villages in the South Hebron Hills. Later, we'll get into more intensive training for the action, aka the birthday party. But these first couple days are a different kind of preparation, an opportunity to get to know the people who live here and work alongside them on small projects that might seem mundane, but help assert their ownership of this land. Lily and I are both in the group that goes to the village of Twani. When we get to Twani, some other internationals are already there, planting olive trees with local Palestinians. It's not clear if more bodies are really needed, but we join in. It's a beautiful day. It's so nice. Oh my God, I can't believe how nice it is. I'm wearing like 12 layers because I thought I was going to freeze to death. <laughs> and now I'm way too hot. <laughs> well, you, at night, we'll see. But yes, the, I mean, yes. that's, I, my layers are in my bag. Yeah, but yeah. no, it's, it's so nice when it's like this. Yeah. Blue sky and yeah. The Israeli military and border police are here too, just watching us. Presumably because, across a dirt road and up a hill from where I'm standing with Lily, there's a settlement called Ma'on. Most of the settlements in the South Hebron Hills are built on the tops of those hills, like walled medieval fortresses looking down on the Palestinian villages below. That's definitely the vibe with Ma'on. I have this image in my head of a settler in a turret with an old-timey spyglass, who calls the cops every time he sees an olive tree or an American. Everything is silent. I hope it will keep silent. Everyone will be safe. It will not be attacked or will be no arrested for this moment. This is Smiha from Twani. There is a standalone episode of Unsettled all about Smiha and a group she helped found called Youth of Sumud. So for right now, they're just standing and watching us. Yeah. Yes, I think that they will do it to close military and soon as, like, soon. So we have to be ready. Yeah, we should be, sorry, say that again? We need to be ready for Close Meritalian Zoom means that maybe they will say us it's a close Meritalian Zoom, it means you have to leave. You have to move here. It's a closed area. If you will be here, you'll be arrested. So they will ask us all to leave this place. So they're just going to stand here until they decide to tell us to leave? We will keep planting trees and complete our action until we see what will happen. For sure, we will not leave, of course. Just we will see what will happen. I hope it will be calm and not dangerous. 
Can you describe what's happening right now? Um, we are trying to get in one of the last olive trees. Um, it's not very easy in this terrain. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of rocks, there's a lot of... Um, it's hard to get a hole that's deep enough, yeah, and you need to be really strong, actually. You need to be really strong and quite good at doing this with quite a lot of experience in order to actually do it. And then, and then after that, we have to pray that they stick around. Like how long these trees will last, I don't know. It's possible that they could come in and pull them out, it's possible that settlers could set them on fire. Um, soldiers can just trample over them, jeeps can drive over them, um, yeah, so do these things are a real test of how long, how long calm can be maintained. Yeah. I mean they're pretty good, they're pretty, um, they say always like olive trees embody submerged steadfastness because they're very resilient and don't need too much water and can survive in pretty bad conditions. That's okay, it's a very good metaphor for the amazing resilience we're seeing around us, but it's kind of hard, yeah, when you have soldiers standing in a line taking photos with their one hand on a camera, one hand on a gun. It's not the best planting environment, <laughs> not quite the right ambience to, to send these trees on their way, so, yeah. I talked to another young person from Tuani named Hamoud. He's 17. Have you have you tried planting trees here before? Yeah, I mean, all of this land we were planting every year, like uh, every year, like we plant like three or four hundred uh, tree. In three days we finished like three or four hundred trees. In three days, like we finished them. The tree, like the last year when we planted, as you see now, there's no tree down because the settler from Havat Maon. They like broke them and they cut them. Fuck, and you know, in the end, they are settlers, so they will not let anything for the Palestinians. So, do you think the same thing is going to happen here? Look, I cannot tell you that maybe it will happen, but in the end, they are occupation and they are settlers, so we don't know. So, maybe they will broke it, maybe they will let it. So, why are we, why are we planting the trees here today? Why we are planting? Yeah, why? It's not a question because it's like a kind of our existence here, kind of our life here. So that's why we are planting the tree. They will cut it today. We will plant another one, like the next day. We will keep planting tree. And Twani is located in a part of the South Hebron Hills called Masafariata. But Twani is only one of two villages in Masafariata with what's called a master plan. That means Twani can have some infrastructure, they can build within their existing footprint, and they can't be summarily kicked off their land. But they can't really get any bigger, no matter how much the population grows, and they still get harassed all the time by settlers and soldiers. But the smaller villages around Twani don't even have a master plan. They're considered by Israel to be essentially squatting on a military firing zone, even though they were there long before the land was claimed for a firing zone in the early 1980s. So these villages are even more vulnerable to violence, demolitions, and expulsion. The next day, New Year's Day 2020, Lily and I and the rest of our group visit some of these villages. 
Sitting on a blanket in the middle of an olive grove, we have breakfast. Soft, round, freshly baked bread with za'atar and olive oil, tomatoes, olives, and cucumbers. Oh, what a life. Mm-hmm. Yum. What a life. What a life. This is, yeah, it's like surrounded by olive trees. Amazing people. Delicious food. Delicious food. I could live on that rosé. I could live on that rosé. Yeah, I agree with you. Only a few yards from where we've just eaten. A woman named Sana shows us where there used to be more olive trees, until they were bulldozed. We stand in the footprint of a structure that belonged to her family. Claire, one of our trip leaders, translates. Okay, so she was saying, so this is where the door used to be? Like, right here? Oh. Yeah? <laughs> Do you want to come, Basel? <laughs> this was the door, and you were saying you would do everything in there, like, They would work around, there was so all the olive trees, they would work around the olive trees around here and cook in there and everything. Yeah, but now it's all not allowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when they come and try to work here every week, it's not allowed. But all the time they are present here. There's a room. In two months? No. Make the room again? Yeah? So inshallah, in two months, they will make this room again. Inshallah. After breakfast, Lily and a couple of others from the group volunteer to stay behind and help make our lunch. The rest of us go with Sana's cousin, Basil, who explains more of the context for what we're seeing. All this area declared as a firing zone area. This is very important to know. So they can, they, everything can demolish. And the water, the cars, if you move with the car, uh, got confiscated. And if they built like a, a water system, like a well, like they dig it in the ground, most of them got demolished. So one of our campaigns that we... Shortly after this land was claimed as a military firing zone in the early 80s, the first settlements were built here, places like Maon and Carmel, now long established. But starting around the year 2000, groups of Israeli Jews set up smaller, scrappier settlements, often referred to as outposts. The outposts are illegal even according to Israeli law, but the outpost settlers are still Israelis, which means they get the attention and the protection of the Israeli military. Basel explains to us what happened to the Palestinians here, who traditionally lived in caves, once the outposts started moving in. So when they were established with the beginning of the, the Second Intifada, the problems and the, the settlers' crimes was very crazy because of the Second Intifada. And like at that time, mostly the problems that were happening here were stay here. Nobody were transferring. We don't know CGNV. We don't know Break the Silence. We don't know who's, 
all these people like except just uh, members of Daesh was like uh, somehow enough maybe for some people but the problems were uh, <coughs> a lot yani. so and the people were not like uh, know how to deal very good with the situation so all these caves were by 2002 last family left from here because of the settlers crimes so until 2019 were nobody living here in 2019, local activists, including Basel, started trying to renovate some of these caves and convince families to move back. They had to bring their tools in the middle of the night and hide them in the caves so the work wouldn't be stopped by the army. Basel takes us to see some of the first fruits of their labor. We were walking on a road, and we have veered off the road and are now just walking kind of uh, along the side of a hill, kind of tilted to the right across uh, the grass and rocks towards this, uh, this farm, which is really like unlike anything I've seen around here. Out of a landscape of rocks and brush and olive trees and more rocks, suddenly there's a small valley lush with green leafy vegetables. And set into a rocky hillside overlooking that valley is an ornate iron door. Behind that door is a spacious cave where I meet Muhammad. Muhammad Hassan Abraham, He was born in this cave in 1967. He lived in this cave when he was a child, until he was about five years old. Then his family started to move in the summers to the city of Yatta. They would come back here in the winters to plow and harvest and tend their sheep. Muhammad and his family lived that way until 2002. That's when the outpost of Agayal was established. The settlers and the army forced his family to leave. From 2002 until last year, Muhammad and his family couldn't come back here, ever. So the cave sat completely empty until the Tuani local council and a group of activists called the Committee for Protection and Steadfastness decided to restore this cave and others in the area. So after 17 years away, in 2019, Muhammad came back to his home, and he intends to stay, inshallah. Between Muhammad and his children and grandchildren, there are nine people altogether living in this cave. So they're chiseling at the rock, trying to make it bigger from the inside. They know they can't build any structures outside the cave. They'll be demolished. Meanwhile, they plant zucchini and onions and other vegetables in the valley just below. Basil, who's been translating, tells me this is really unusual for the area. People used to plant, like until today, uh, seeds for the sheep and the normal things, not vegetables and projects like this. It's it's make the 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 area look there is life here when it's uh, more green, and uh, will encourage like a tourists uh, people to come more and will be something like wow they want to see what's going on, and also 
will encourage the people to like uh, to come back to their land so living in Yatta. And this is like uh, uh, honestly what give us a hope of as activists here when we say we are doing non-violent resistance, we are facing occupation, we are like stay here. These examples are really giving us a hope. Outside the cave, there's coffee for the visitors. Drinking out of a cup that says coffee Americano that was served to me by a kid wearing a sweatshirt that says NYC hacker. <laughs> Doing everything they can to make me feel at home. <laughs> then they put us to work. I think there's like two major tasks. One is taking dirt from over there and bring it here to level this up and then also oh, smooth it out. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and then the other one is to prepare this space down here to be better for planting. You so can planting also cornflower like this. Here. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You want to make the land smooth. Yeah. That night, back in Bethlehem, Basel and the CJNV trip leaders finally reveal the plan for the action to retake a freshwater spring near Tuani that's been claimed by the settlers from Avigail. There is a spring uh, nearby Tuani called uh, Al Bayda Spring, which is. Spring. Spring. Water spring. I think just to be really clear that there's a material goal of the action and there's a symbolic goal of the action. And the material goal of the action is to make the spring more accessible. And the symbolic goal of the action is to reclaim this spring as a Palestinian site and to tell the bigger story of um, the restriction of water rights in Palestine. And so it's a win-win situation. Either the army doesn't bother us and we get to repair the spring, or we get stopped doing that and then we get to tell the story of how bad it is. Then it's time to get into the details. There's a map with arrows. There's a plan A and a plan B. There are different roles, medics, negotiators, documenters, and de-arresters, whose job is to try to prevent Palestinians from getting arrested or assaulted if it comes to that. So there are different levels of risk. Greens are folks that do not want to get arrested on that day, slash are less willing to get arrested on that day. Um, Reds are the folks that are willing to resist orders, to get arrested, and so that's the division that we're gonna make. Also, uh, an important thing, there's reds and greens, but the truth is that uh, the whole area that we're in is under military occupation, um, which means that uh, it's really yellow. The whole scenario, the whole space is yellow. It means that being there does not guarantee that you'll end up in a police station at the end of the day, and it doesn't guarantee that you won't if you decided that that's not for you. Um, There is some precariousness to the situation because we're in occupied territory doing nonviolent resistance. So if you're used to, in the United States, like making a really clear decision about being green and red, that's like, not the rules of the game here. Cool. The next day, after more training and briefing and debriefing, every participant has to fill out a card, committing to a role and risk level for the action. I check in with Bob, who you met in the last episode. For Bob, this is a pretty easy choice. So what did you decide to do? 
uh, red documentation. Okay. Uh, how come? Why not? I mean, that's what I came here for, to get arrested, to have an impact, uh, you know, to support people fighting the occupation. So. And I've got a cell phone, so I can try to document as much of it as I can. For Lily, this is more complicated. She chose red in the end, but she almost went for green, for reasons she's not entirely proud of. I was thinking about doing green because I want to make sure that I can come back here. And then I was wrestling with the fact that then is that saying something, that I'm making it about me and my personal identity being tied to being here, and finding that quite an ugly thing to sit with, um, because I shouldn't be coming to Palestine to take it away as a part of my identity. I should be coming here to do this work, to offer what I can to those who are really suffering. Um, So, yeah, that was a wrestle in my brain. You do think there's a risk that you might not be allowed to come back to Bethlehem if you were arrested and indicted? Well, everything now is just so up in the air. Everything is so volatile. And, like, by the day, everything is changing in terms of the fact that Israel is really, I think, probably feeling quite threatened by these amplified voices on the left, particularly amongst American Jewry. But if they can set an example of one of us in order to make it very clear that we should all be afraid, what they do is they, they do it to intimidate, to make sure that people won't come back and don't try to come back. You know, it's they have so much more power in scaring people off trying to come back than they actually do in people arriving and then kind of deporting them at the airport. It's the intimidation factor of keeping people at bay. And yeah, if they want to set an example of us, they will. And that is something that I'm very worried about. And the idea that I don't want the example to be set of me, but I would be comfortable with it being set of someone else in the group is is not a nice feeling because that feels horribly selfish. But that's uh, definitely a, a thing that could happen. So the action is tomorrow. Tonight, I'm back on the terrace of the hotel with Lily. Only this time, we're joined by Tarek and Auda from Umel Kher. Remember, Lily used to volunteer in Umel Kher, so they've all known each other for a while. Which group? Group two. No, I'm with Nasa. Is that good or bad? No, like he all the time, like go and like confront the soldiers, so he will be arrested for sure. Who knows? Maybe you get arrested first. I'm, I'm in the green. No one guarantees. You know, like tomorrow we are in the green, we will make <laughs> tea will. for the people. We will <laughs> yeah. hanging you out. Paint your nails. <laughs> yeah. Get a <laughs> yeah. Make fun of you guys who are in the red. <laughs> and we will enjoy our day. But don't, 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 uh, no, 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 like this is what I want to say. You will miss the opportunity of our jokes that we'll make together when we, when they drive us by this big bus to the police station. Oh, we were laughing a lot. There's no time for jokes. Well, like, These know, it's more enjoyable. Listen, listen. You know, if you stay in green and we get arrested, then you start being worried about us. You didn't know that we are actually enjoying our time. We used to have the Rabbi David Mavisir, and he was quoting the Torah a lot and making jokes, and he was mocking the soldiers. And we were laughing a lot, literally. We weren't going to jail. We were just going in a laughing tour. <laughs> We've been trained to be like, if they come over saying we want to arrest you, that everyone's just grabbing and de-arresting. That's what we've been trained. So, I remember like the, that I give you an Lily. advice. Huh? No, yeah, Lily, tomorrow you will try to arrest uh, Nasser, huh? Yeah. You have Is to do your best. News? No, no, you have to do your best so you get arrested along. So you resist, resist, resist. Like when they try to arrest Abu, Abu Salam, and they will target him first. They know him very well. Yeah. They recognize all of us, actually. It's not only him. Yeah, sure. But they will see he's the older and he's the leader. So they will arrest him first. So 
if you resisted hardly, de-arrested him hardly, they will arrest him. You're saying de-arrest violently, out is saying, just go calmly and do nothing. I'm getting mixed messages and I need one answer, a clear answer. Sort it out, guys, sort it out. Tarek and Alda go back to Umalkher. The rest of us go back to our rooms and try to get some rest. The plan is that we're going to leave very, very early in the morning for Twani for the action. But around 11 o'clock at night, the trip leaders come knocking on each of our doors. The plan has changed. After all the secrecy around the action, after calling it the birthday party and all our WhatsApp messages, someone leaked CJNB's press release too early. And the military knows we're coming. They know where we're going to be and what we're going to do. They can easily set up what's called a flying checkpoint in the morning to stop us from getting there. So we have to go to Twani tonight. People start to gather in the lobby of the hotel. I get out my microphone and wander between small groups of activists. The energy is sleepy and nervous and a little goofy. We're waking up at midnight uh, to protect Palestinian water. Um, no, I'm bad. I can't do this right now. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> you say waking up like you went to sleep. Oh, I did go to sleep. Yeah, I was I was passed out. Somehow I get roped into a debate about coats that Lily is a part of. Is there a difference to you between a coat and a jacket? <laughs> like this is a jacket, I'd say. That's a, that's no, a coat. I would say that. No, I think a jacket to me is like a lighter could be worn underneath the coat. Yes, for sure. But a, okay, <laughs> all 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 jackets are coats. Not all coats are jackets. I would say oh. the opposite. Oh, like a denim jacket, not the coat. I would say all jackets. When I find Bob, he is having his ear pierced or re-pierced. I'm not sure. Is that okay? Yeah, that... yeah, yeah, that's fine. Did it come through? Not yet. It's right on the cusp. Yeah, it's it's up. Max, if you want a pen, there's a few more sitting right there. They are like the Hamsa evil eye symbol. I got them as a Hanukkah white elephant gift. Up, oh, we're through. You did it. Yeah. How was that? It was fine. You, you know, you know, there was no hole there to begin with. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> what, what, did it ooze a lot of junk? Nothing. Nothing? Really? <laughs> no, there was a lot. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I try to control my kidding, but sometimes... Just got to shed a little blood before the, the big stuff, you know? Finally, we start filing out of the lobby to get on our bus to Twani. Uh, we just walked outside and there's a bus that, from Hillel Taglit, which is funny because I went on Hillel Taglit. Taglit. That's the Hebrew name for birthright Israel. It's midnight. The people are amped. We were asleep, but no sleep till the occupation ends. So, here we go. Next up, the action. Guys, come at us! Come at us! Over there! To the side! This is Palestine! The Birthday Party was reported by Max Friedman and produced by Max Friedman, Emily Bell, and Alana Levinson, with help from Asaf Calderon. 
Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Nadine Rashid for help with translation, Oriel Eisner and everyone at the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. CJNV invited Unsettled to report on the Winter 2020 delegation, and they waived their usual participation fee, but they have had no input on the content of this series. The birthday party is dedicated to two men I met in the South Hebron Hills who have since passed away, Tom Marver and Haj Suleiman al-Hadalim. May their memories be for a blessing.